If, if you're new here, welcome to Redemption Parker. I'm Mark. I'm one of the elders here. It's my privilege to open up God's Word with you right now. And, and if you do have that, we'd ask you to turn to, uh, if you can find it, the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. It's the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're working our way over the next 36 weeks through the Gospel of John. And, and if, you, if you don't have a Bible, and uh, we, we hope that you do, uh, we would prefer that you have a, a paperback version of it uh, so that you can take notes, that you can put your eyes on it. Uh, otherwise, we'd, we'd invite you to uh, pull it up on your phone or your app. But we, we just want you to see with your eyes that this is coming from God's Word because any authority we have here comes directly from this, not, not from anything else. And so uh, whenever you hear a sermon, it, it should always be tested in light of Scripture because it is our sola scriptura idea. It is the, the Word of God. And so we're going through John, and we're going through it in 36 weeks. And for some of you, you're like, that's a really long series. And for others of you, especially if you know this passage, we, we got together this week, and we're like, we could do an eight-week series on this passage. And so the other thing we're asking is that you do the work on your own, like, like that you feed yourself that, uh, that you spend, you're spending time in this word, reading through it and studying it and uh, getting into it on your own, because uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover all that God has for you and for us in this passage today. But nonetheless, we'll start with uh, John chapter 3. We're going to hang out mostly in John chapter 4, but John chapter 3, where we left off last week, uh, and uh, I'll pick it up, I'll read it, uh, pray for our time, and then continue in our worship through the word. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you now in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. And once again, we're asking you to do that which only you can do, and that is to open us, to open us up to your truth, to meet us at our deepest places. So Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, give us ears to hear, hearts to embrace, minds to comprehend, all that you have for us collectively and individually in this time, through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So, so when we gather here, we know that God is on a mission. Whatever Jesus sets out to do, he will always accomplish what he sets out to do. When he came into, from heaven down to earth to a mission of rescue, he wasn't hoping that some of you would, would, would embrace him and believe him. He knew who would embrace him and believe him. He went on a rescue mission. He accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. And so that's why we plant churches. That's why we're here, because we believe that in this room and within just 10 feet of this room and then on Main Street, there are tens of thousands of people created in God's image that do not know their purpose for why they exist, and they don't really even care. And yet, God so loved the world, he's on a mission, and we believe that he will accomplish his mission. 
Like, like do, you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's arm is not too short to sh- save? That he can bring dead people to life? If you don't believe that and you call yourself a Christian, then you're wasting your time this morning. We believe that God is going to rescue and redeem thousands of people out of this city. And we believe that God is inviting you and me to be a part of his unstoppable mission in this room, in this building, and in this city. And so I'm going to have you do a little uh, all play this morning. Normally when you come in here, and if you're new here, uh, you'll, you'll see that there's a connect card on your, on your seat. And that is just a way for us to connect with you and say, hey, whatever questions you have, we, we understand it's an intimidating, intimidating thing anytime you step into a, a, a new church. And if they're doing bodybuilding outside the door, that just adds to it. Uh, and so you're like, what is this about? Uh, we, we'd love for you just to fill out, give us your email address. We're not going to blast your email box full, but we want to connect with you, maybe invite you to our next coffee connection or something like that for you to ask your questions. Uh, but, but on the other side of that, you'll notice, and this is for all of us, there's always an opportunity for you to uh, write a prayer request. Now, you can pray with us after the sermon during communion. We'll have that time. But if, maybe you just want to write a prayer request and drop that in the offering box uh, during communion. We, we welcome that all the time. But today, today, I want us to do something a little bit different. I, I want us to believe that God accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. For he so loved the world that he gave his only son. I want us to believe that for people in our life. So, so over the course of this sermon, I want you to think of a person. A, a person that is maybe a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, uh, someone in this city that, that God would put on your heart to, to pray for. And you're going to write their name down. You can, you can just write their first name. It's fine. God knows. But write their first name down. Put it in the offering box. And we're going to put that on a list of, of names that we're believing God will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. We're believing that God will rescue people. We're believing that God is inviting us to be part of that rescue. We're believing that, that maybe even a year from now, we would do baptisms of people that are in this city that today don't know that they have been called by God and will be rescued and redeemed over the course of the next year. And so I'm going to invite you to put a name down. Say, well, I'm going to put the name down of the person next to me, and they might know. And I, I don't, Well, make up a name then. God knows. And we'll still pray for that person, and God will still know. But this is a small step of faith. And no, I believe we don't just exist for ourselves, but that God is a God who is on mission, and his mission is unstoppable from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is currently right now rescuing people, redeeming people with his great love. Now, now there's, there, there's this invitation for us to be a part of that. God is sovereign over the ends. Who, who, will, who will we celebrate with in the coming years in his rescuing work? But he's, he's also sovereign over the means. How, how, how are they going to come to know Jesus? Well, we're going to tell them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to serve them. We're going to love them. And, and through those means, God is going to use you and me to rescue and redeem people. And so we're trusting God. But, but when you begin to actually engage people, you'll see that, that they have some common objections. And, and usually it falls into one of two categories. It, it falls into the category of kind of what we saw last week with Nicodemus, which basically says, no, I'm good. 
I look at CNN, I look at the news, and basically I'm good enough. I don't need that. I, I don't, I, I, I'm good. I, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and so they'll just see my, my life's pretty good, and, and that's kind of the modus operandi in the suburbs. We have things, by and large, generally speaking, pretty good, and so they'll say, I'm good. And they might say something like, uh, Christianity, faith is for the weak. And to which I would reply, I agree with that. It is for the weak, but, but I think we would disagree on the scope of it because, brother, you, you say it's, for, it's a crutch for the weak. Your legs are broken. You just don't know it. It is for the weak, and we desperately need God. So that's the first category of people. I don't need it. I'm good enough. And yet, we saw last week, Jesus is still on a rescue mission. You must be born again, Nicodemus. And in grace, he, he woos him to the Father in that way. But then there's a, a, another kind of objection, one that we'll see today in John chapter 4. It's the one that says, that the, the person that looks at their life and says, there's no way God would love me. There's no way, uh, if you knew what I have done, if you, know, if you knew what has been done to me, uh, I'm damaged goods. There's no way God could love me. Maybe someday, maybe someday I'll, I'll be good enough. Maybe someday I'll clean myself up and I'll, I'll come to church and, and then I'll be good enough. But, but you see in the end, it's really the same issue. It's really both, both Nicodemus and this woman looking at themselves saying, it's what I do or it's what I've done. And the gospel says, it has nothing to do with that. It's all about what Jesus has done for you in the cross by rescue and redeeming you by his great love. And so there's these two tensions. And again, last week we looked at the person that thought they were good enough, and Jesus said, you must be born again. And today we're going to look at a person who's deeply broken, deeply wounded, deeply sinful, and she knows it at her core, and yet Jesus is on a mission. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and he will not be stopped in his pursuit of those he sets his affections on. So pick it up in John chapter 4, a uh, kind of a long passage. In fact, this is the longest conversation we have recorded of Jesus with any other person. And uh, it's just amazing that it's this person. It says a lot about Jesus. It says a lot about his compassion and love, but we'll, we'll begin to enter into that. I'll pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 4. If you follow along, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay. So I always, whenever possible, want to remind us that this is not a newspaper account. So do not read this uh, with a cool indifference. The, the Bible invites us, especially the Gospels invite us, to enter into the story. And so as much as you can, read it like you read books as a kid, with an imagination. Put yourself in the story. When I'm reading books to my kids at night and they get thirsty, we're thirsty. When they're cold, we feel cold. When they're hungry, we want a midnight snack. That's how you are to enter into the story because you're in this story. All of us are in this story. And so let's not stand off from the story, but let's enter into the story and say, what's going on? Put yourself in it. Think about the scene. It says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. 
Now, if we had a map on the wall, we'd have Galilee on the north, and we'd have uh, Jerusalem, Judea on the south. And in the middle there, you'd have this territory called Samaria. And it says he had to pass through it. If we were just looking at a map, we'd be like, okay, yeah, just go, just go north. You'll pass through that. But if you remember from last week, as someone who's pious, that, that, that did everything they could to be a clean Jew, they would do everything they could to avoid being unclean. And the Samaritans were unclean. Their land was unclean. To, to talk to a Samaritan uh, was, was despicable. I recently read uh, The Warmth of Other Sons, the, the story of the great migration uh, of uh, former slaves from the American South to the North and to the West. And, and in there, just eye-opening to see just the great division uh, in our country. We, we all know about Woolworths and the, 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 the whites-only uh, drinking fountain and the colored drinking fountain. They, they changed their whole plumbing system because of their animosity to each other. And that would pale in comparison to Jews and Samaritans. And so Nicodemus, if he was looking at the map, he'd say, of course, we go east over the Jordan River, we take an extra three days north, and then we go back into Galilee. That's the way you remain clean. But the text says he had to go through Samaria. We'll see why he had to go, because he was about his father's business. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He had a divine appointment set up by his father. And so he had to go through Samaria because we know it wasn't, he was in a hurry because he ends up in this story staying a couple extra days in Samaria. He had to go. So he had to go. But, but again, picture the scene. It's, it's a hot Palestinian desert day. As, as the disciples head out, they're like, hey, Jesus, why are we going north? We, we need to go across the Jordan. And he's like, no, 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 you, you follow me. And they're like, but we don't have any water. We don't have any food. If we go through there, we're going to have to stop and get water and food. And that means we'll be unclean because that drinking fountain says for colored people only. And we can't drink for that. Jesus says, come on, come on, come, let's go. And, and in this passage, it's just a beautiful scene of both the full humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus coming in play. Jesus is tired. He's weary as he was. It was the sixth hour, high noon. The sun in the desert is, is baking down. Imagine July in Phoenix walking across the city, okay, if you can. So you're walking through. You got no water. Imagine the time when you were extremely, extremely thirsty. Just when you start to approximate that, you're starting to feel what the disciples felt. You're starting to feel the tension of that. And, and so Jesus sends them into town, and he's waiting at the well because he's got an appointment. We see the appointment in the next verse. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, John wants to make this very clear that she's from Samaria. She is a Samaritan woman, said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me a woman of Samaria. And just to be clear, John adds a parenthetical note. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, if you don't know your Bible very well, you think of the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and I mean, they're, they're great. And then, and then we think the Pharisees, those are the bad guys. But again, that's not the cultural context. 
You have to understand that, that in, on the mission of Jesus, it was, we know it was costly. He went to the cross, but, but you understand he, it was very costly. He, he shatters many boundaries in this, in this encounter to, to go on a rescue mission of love. He shatters a metaphysical boundary. He was truly God, and he took on a second nature to become man, to enter into our place. He shatters a, a geographic boundary. He crosses from Judea into Samaria. He, he shatters a, a cultural, ethnic boundary, a, a Jew coming to a Samaritan. And John points out they, they don't have any dealings with each other. He sh- shatters a gender boundary. He goes and talks to a woman in public in the market square. I mean, even today in areas of the Middle East, you would not see that. But Jesus is willing to shatter all the boundaries on a mission of love because he so loved the world that he was going to accomplish his mission. He was going to pursue this woman. He was going to have her heart for the kingdom, but he's going to go through it in a process. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. And I imagine, again, just hear it. Feel the heat. Feel the desperation for, for, for a drink. Feel uh, all that's going on in this moment. Feel the awkwardness. Feel the tension. She's like, we can't even have this conversation. You're a man. I'm a woman. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. That, what, what, why are we even having this conversation? And, and she's wondering. I'm wondering if she's wondering if she's like seeing him as, as yet another man that is going to leave her empty because we'll see in the passage that's been a pattern in her life. Or, or another man that maybe she thinks he can finally satisfy her soul, but she doesn't know who it is. And so Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you knew the gift, and he says, I'm the gift. <laughs> if you knew me and, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And of course, as we see so often in John's gospel, she doesn't understand <laughs> She's on this level, and Jesus is trying to take her so much deeper than that. But, but he's beginning to introduce this idea that, that I'm here. I'm the gift of God. If you knew, it'd be like living water. That Literally, it, it means uh, jumping water, splashing water. It's just this picture of, of, of goodness. <laughs> and so he goes on. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You don't even have a cup. And, and, and I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. Even if, even if I had a bucket, you can't drink from my bucket. My bucket is colored only. And you, you can't have that. This, this doesn't make sense to me. And she's, she's missing it. What's this living water? Verse 12, she senses in this Jewish man some sort of claim to superiority, and so she challenges him. Are you greater than our father Jacob? For he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So you need to understand some history here. 
700 years before the Assyrian Empire came into the northern part of Israel and, and conquered them and scattered the best of the Israelites and sent them away. And then they brought other conquered people into the land. And so these people began to marry each other and they began to compromise and syncretize their religion. And so they'd have some Jewish practices and then they'd have some pagan practices. And so they'd try to worship God and then they would sacrifice their children. You say, that's awful. How, how is that even possible? Well, our country's been doing it for three and a half decades. We're not more advanced. We're not more morally superior. They've syncretized the religion. And because uh, uh, so much of the Old Testament they felt was, was Judea-centered, they cut themselves off from the stream of God's revelation and grace and mercy, and they only embraced the first five books of the Bible— Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they said, this is what we're going to believe, and then we're going to add all these other things. And so they were detestable. They were cult members. They had taken the religion uh, that God had given them, and they had twisted it and added it and put sexual practices in it uh, they, and all sorts of impurity. And so there was this animosity. We're right, you're wrong. And, and the Jews saying, no, we're right, and you're wrong. And so she's like, well, Jacob gave us this well. Surely you're not better than Jacob. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's starting to, to, to get to the heart of the matter. He's saying it, it doesn't work long term. This well doesn't work long term. You're, you're going to be thirsty again. Well, what's he talking about? She wouldn't know because her and her people have cut themselves off of the stream of God's revelation and grace. She wouldn't know Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 talks about living water. Jeremiah, this prophet, prophesying over his people, God speaking to him, uh, says this. But I'll pick it up in verse 11. I'll have on the screen verse 13. But he says this. But my people, God is speaking, but my people have changed their glory. God has said, I have been their God and they've been my people. I've rescued and redeemed them. I've loved them. I've provided for them, but they have changed their glory. For that which does not profit, verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. In verse 13, just a very sad indictment on the people of God. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a beautiful picture of what's happened in the hearts of these people. It's a beautiful picture of what's happening in this woman's heart. It's a picture of what's in our hearts. So God has made, uh, set his affections on his people, and, and it's a picture of in the desert, a spring just bubbling up with fresh sweet water that they can come to any time and drink of and be quenched. And they say, no, nah, we don't want that. And they turn their back on that. But it gets worse. They dig. They start digging holes. And they dig and they dig and they dig and they hewn out a cistern and water seeps in and it's stagnant water and it's, it's just a cesspool. And they're like, this is good. And they drink of it and they drink for a while, but then it empties out. And so they dig another hole, they dig another hole, they dig another hole and they drink for it for a while, but they, they're left more thirsty than they were at the beginning. And they go from hole to hole to hole. And this is what Jesus is trying to help her to see. 
He says, everything that you, you, you have a thirst. You are an embodied soul. So, so our physical bodies are, are, are hints to what's true about our spiritual bodies. We have longings. We have hunger. We have thirst that is meant to ultimately be satisfied. We'll see in this passage in Jesus alone. And yet we've turned our back on the living God and said, I'll dig this hole because maybe this hole will satisfy me. Maybe pornography will satisfy me and I'll dig and I'll dig and I'll drink of it. Oh, that's good for a while. It's empty. I got to dig another hole. I got to do something else. I got to find more money. Maybe money is the hole I should dig. Dig, dig, dig. And it feels good for a little while. And then it's empty. And so, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to dig again. I'm going to dig again. Maybe it's Facebook likes and Instagram follows and retweets and and maybe that'll satisfy my soul. It's ridiculous. But we all do it. We all have cisterns that we're digging and digging and digging. And God is standing off on the side. He says, I'm living water. I created you to be satisfied in me. But you've turned your back. And you've dug your holes. And we have a lot of cisterns in the suburbs. A lot of stagnant water. A lot of things that we tell ourselves, if I just get that, if I could just drink that, then I'll be satisfied. Finally, I won't have to worry about it, and I'll just be fine, and, and, and we believe the lie. But the problem, the problem, and this is the problem that Jesus often confronts in people like ourselves, in, in rich people, the problem with rich people is you can dig another well, and you can dig another well, and you can dig another well. And you just believe that maybe the next well, maybe the next relationship, maybe the next marriage, maybe the next amazing sexual encounter will finally satisfy what I'm looking for. So we dig and we dig and we dig. And Jesus is trying to help her see that this is the heart of the issue. She's missing the point at the well. He says, it doesn't work long term. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is not saying that you won't ever have thirst again. He's not saying that you won't ever have desires. He's saying that when you encounter him and he becomes life and hope to you, that he'll be a source within you that you can continue to come back to and find satisfaction for your soul. You don't have to go out looking for the next thing or the next thing or the next thing. Oh, we still do because on this side of eternity, we're still kind of broken. We're new creations, and yet sometimes we act like we were before, and so there's still this tension. But in Christ, we have the source the bubbling water that we can continue to come back to and come back to and come back to. Woman still doesn't get it. She, she's getting closer, but she's twisted it. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She says, that sounds pretty good to me. I'll take Jesus if he can give me what I want. I'll take Jesus if I can be healthy or wealthy. I'll take Jesus if he'll make my life all that, I, all that these other wells promise. That is a demonic false gospel. The gospel that says Jesus will make your life better is from the pit of hell. 
Jesus is not about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He's not ultimately concerned with your safety and security. He's concerned with your soul and your life and real life in him. So Jesus doesn't promise you that your life will be better. In fact, if you walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you know the opposite might be true. He doesn't promise that your marriage will be better. He doesn't promise that your job will go well. He doesn't promise anything. He promises to give you life, an abundant life forever and ever. So she sees Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus will never be a means to an end. Jesus is the end. And until you see Jesus as the end, as the source, as as your only hope, then you'll never see Jesus for what he really is. And so he's on a mission though. And Jesus accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. So he's not giving up on her like, you just don't get it. I got to go on. I don't know why I came through here. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, and he's not changing the subject. Go, call yourself, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is a straight shooter. Jesus, as we've said, will say offensive things for our good and his glory. He says the most offensive thing. He, He goes to the most tender spot of this woman's heart, and now his divinity is on display. He's tired and weary and thirsty, but he also knows. He knows you, and he knows me, and he knows what's in this woman. And so he's showing her her broken cisterns. And and now we know why it's in the middle of the day, and a woman has come out by herself to get water. I mean, even now in the developing world, if you go out and, 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 and at the break of dawn, you'll see the women gather together and often go and, and bring the water together. It's a communal event, and, and it's like Starbucks. They, they go to the well, and they talk about family. They, they talk about <coughs> their jobs. They talk about everything, and they go back together. But this woman, she comes out in the middle of the day in the hot Palestinian sun, to get her water. She's, Nicodemus came at night. He was hiding by night. He was blind. She comes in day, hiding, just like Nicodemus. <laughs> she's, she's hiding from the scornful remarks. So, so you got to understand, it wasn't just that she had five husbands, and the man that she's now with, she was basically exchanging sex for rent. She, she in that time, could be killed for her adultery. Her life was at stake. And so she sneaks out at the time. She knows no one will be there because no one goes out in the middle of the day in the desert. And she has this encounter. And Jesus says, go call your husband. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. She's like, I don't have a husband. That's right, you've had five. And you've had many other men. It's a well that you've gone to time and time and time and time and time again. How's that working out for you? He, he cuts her, but he cuts her like a surgeon would cut us for our good and for our healing. And he goes right to the most tender spot. And it'd be appropriate for us now even to think on this. The, the elephant in the room in the church is sexual immorality. Some of you struggled even last night with pornography. Some of you have uh, cheated on your spouse. Some of you are a, a serial Uh, adulterer. And Jesus says, that well, how's that working out for you? 
Jesus says, how's that burden on your shoulders? How's that weighing down? I can take that from you. I can heal that from you. And we say, how, Lord? There's so much shame. There's so much condemnation. There's so much weight that I've been carrying. How can you take this for me? Well, we know Jesus will go to a cross and he'll say, I thirst on the cross so that you don't have to thirst any longer. He, he came to take that from you. He came to forgive us. He came to uh, cleanse us. He came to give us living water. Verse 19, the woman said to, to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Sir, uh, while we're talking about my adultery, let's talk theology. <laughs> but she actually... Even though she's trying to deflect, he's gentle, he's patient, and he goes there with her, and he shows her, even in that, the truth of the matter. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's talking about himself. When Jesus talks about the hour, or John mentions hour in his gospel, he's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. We know that Jesus will be the source and center of our worship. We know that we don't have a Mecca. We are Mecca. We we don't go on a pilgrimage. God went on a pilgrimage to take residence in our lives. And so he says, you worship what you do not know, We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. So that's true. But verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's going after her heart again. He's he's showing her her need. When when we were talking about this this week, Matthew said something that was just real profound about this passage, and I don't want to skip that. He said, everybody north of puberty is sexually broken. Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So so none of us, and myself included, standing here can stand off in, in, in judgment of anyone in this room, and yet there's just something about sexual sin that wreaks havoc in our lives wreaks havoc on us personally, in our souls, in our hearts, in our lives. And Jesus says, I will go even to the depths to heal you of that, to bring you back from that. And so he continues to show her. She's really just worshiping the idea of a man that will truly love her. And she's broken. She's been broken. She's been mistreated. She's been abused. And she thinks maybe the next guy or maybe the next guy or maybe the next guy And finally, Jesus stands before her, the one guy that can give her what she really desires. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She's like, well, this is all kind of confusing theologically, but Messiah come and and, it'll work this all out. And Jesus is like, I just did that. (laughs) That, that, I, I just did that for you. Verse 24, 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one. I'm the hope. 
And I think it's in that moment that, that her eyes are finally broken. Again, the, the Bible's over here. I, I don't, this is conjecture here, but, but I, I've been in enough counseling situations to know that when you, when you finally reach down deep enough and you touch the, the most tender spot, the, the deepest wound, and you begin to see God at work in that moment, well, what happens is there's the snot and the tears, and she's just undone, the snot and the tears. And I love the, that the Bible records the awkwardness of this because verse 27 look at this then the disciples came back they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her so they just roll up from having getting food and they're chatting they're like whoa hey <laughs> and, and they're just like this is awkward why is rabbi talking with the Samaritan why is she bawling <laughs> like what what is going on here but, but she's finally free. She's finally found the well that she's always been looking for. There was a Scottish writer that said, the young man who rings the door of the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Every time we go out and, and seek things that, to fill our soul, it's, it's this longing, it's this desire for God to finally meet us there, and we think maybe it's this or maybe it's that or maybe it's this. And finally, she finally sees a place of healing and renewal. Verse 28, and transformation. Because living water transforms us. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. She, she left her water jar. The very reason she came out in the middle of the day, hiding from everybody, she left her water jar. Why, why did she leave her water jar? There, there's some significance to that. It's what the Puritans called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. See, Jesus isn't saying to you, clean yourself up and really just worship me. Jesus isn't saying, be good boys and girls. Jesus didn't come so that you could just believe a set of doctrines so that you could get into heaven when you die. Jesus came to transform your life and the only way that happens is that your affections are set on something better, something good. She's finally tasted the living water, and so she can leave her physical jar aside. And, and where does she go? She goes as a transformed woman. She went away into town. She went away into the town. The, the town, small towns are not kind to women of ill reputation, but she, she went into the town, the, the very people she was trying to avoid with her life. And she said to the people, I mean, at this moment, again, put yourself in there. She, she comes into this town, this woman with a very clear reputation. She says to the people, come see a man. They roll their eyes. Are you serious? Another man. Like we know about your other five husbands and we know the man you're with now. You, you want us to come see a man? And then she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Are you serious? We, we, know, we know what you did. We know who you are. And he said that to you? Like, like he laid you bare like that? He, he outed you like that? And she's happy about it. Like this doesn't make sense to them. She's got tears in her eyes, snot on her face, and she's got a smile on her face. She's like, come, come see him. You, you just got to meet this guy. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. 
She, she, she doesn't have the burden anymore. She, she's free. She's free to confess her sins with, with other people. Uh, she, she's, she's experienced all this healing, all this growth in this moment. And, and if you're a Christian and you've never had the experience of confessing your sins, not just to God, that's necessary, but confessing your sins to one another, then, then you're stunting your Christian freedom and growth and lightness. There is a freedom that comes when you come into the room and say, look how wicked my heart is. Look, look what I've done. Can, can you, um, I don't know what I was thinking. Well, I know what I was thinking. I was thinking this would satisfy me, but it hasn't. And, and when you confess, you, you're, you're unloading this thing and, and there's this healing that comes into it. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And, and so, uh, do you have anyone like that in your life? Or are you just playing a religious game, hoping that, eh, I, I said it to Jesus and that's good enough. But th there's real freedom that comes in the body of Christ when we share with one another. And she's now experiencing this freedom. It, it transforms her life, and, and her life is now a catalyst to transform other people's lives. Remember, God uses means to his ends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son Verse 39, drop down to 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. This is unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi to do, but Jesus had more missions to accomplish in that town, and so he stayed two days. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, God, God wants to use your story of redemption, your story of discovering the well of living water as a catalyst to bring other people in. And, and so let me just pray for us to that end. May God use Redemption Parker and the other churches across this city to be that kind of catalyst in this city. And let me just remind you, even before I pray, to, to write down that name, whoever God's put on your heart. And let's trust God. Let's believe God that he, he will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. And let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the communion table once again. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the, the living water that we can come and drink from even now. Lord, I pray... I pray, Lord, that we would, when we're thirsty this week physically, that we would be reminded of our spiritual need and thirst in you that only you can quench. God, I pray that if anyone's here that, that has not yet tasted of living water, that even now they would begin to sip from that well that will never run dry and be transformed by your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, I pray for anyone here that is burdened by sin, Pray especially for, for those burdened by sexual sin, that they would be able to take it to you and, and feel your grace and mercy because you took it to the cross and died in our place to pay for that sin. And then help us to share our burdens with one another. Help us to confess our sins to one another. Help us to pray for one another that we might be healed. And Father, even now, as people write down names, and, and trust you and ask you to do a redemptive work in our city. 
Lord, we ask that you would go before us in preparing the way, preparing divine appointments for us and for other people and other churches and other Christians in this city that we might celebrate that you are God of new birth and new life and living water. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.